All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge, Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge Podcast with Neil Litton. Neil, we've got Brian Cully on the show today. Who's Brian? So Brian is the chief executive officer of Lineage Cell Therapeutics, which is a publicly traded cell therapy company. Uh, Brian has a long history in the cell therapy field. Uh, Before Lineage, he was the CEO of Artemis Therapeutics. Uh, Before Artemis, he was the CEO of Mast Therapeutics. Um, and so we're really excited to have Brian on the show, uh, continuing in our series, doing a deep dive into the regenerative medicine and cell therapy space. Cell therapies have been costly in part because of the personalized nature of most of these therapies. Lineage is developing off-the-shelf therapies. What's the potential for expanding the market with an off-the-shelf therapy? Well, the obvious implications are, you know, number one, um, Easier to manufacture. Uh, number two, uh, obviously, COGS or, or the cost to manufacture these therapies. So as opposed to the autologous ther- cell therapies, which are derived from an individual patient, um, those cells are removed from a, from a patient. They are somehow you know, genetically altered and then they're reinfused into the patient. Right? That is a very you know, t- time-intensive and costly process. It, it is and will remain, I think, great for certain indications. I think as we think about expanding the use of cell therapies more broadly, there's no doubt that there's a trend toward allogeneic or off-the-shelf cell therapies for uh, the, uh, you know, a variety of reasons, um, largely around the cost to produce them um, in terms of manufacturing. Uh, they'll also be easier to deliver as, as well. Um, in terms of you know supply chain and logistics, so lineage is is particularly focused on off the shelf uh, therapies, uh, off the self cell therapies. And what are you hoping to hear from Brian today? Yeah, I want to dive into a little bit about uh, their programs. So um, lineage has uh, a lead program called Up Regen, which is in the clinic for the dry version of AMD. Uh, or age-related macular degeneration. Love to hear a little bit about uh, how those cells actually work. How do they function? What is the mechanism of action? Do they engraft? Do they only work by the parakin or, or trophic effect? Uh, and then I'm particularly interested to hear about their other program, OPC1, which is a treatment in the clinic uh, for spinal cord injury. That is a program that I know quite a bit about. Uh, it was originally developed by a company uh, by the name of Giron. That was one that was funded uh, by the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, as the listeners no doubt know, a place that I worked for many years. Um, it was actually the very first 
um, uh, embryonic-derived stem cell that received an IND from the FDA and went into human clinical trials. So that program in particular has a long history behind it, and it's really interesting to see uh, you know, that it's in the hands of lineage now, and I, I really would love to hear an update about what they're doing with it. Well, if you're all set, let's do it. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm incredibly excited to have you with us uh, today. Hey, Neil. Thanks very much. It is my pleasure to be here with you. Brian, I know you are the CEO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics, uh, which is a publicly traded company. So I will just give you a moment to go through uh, some legal disclaimers and a safe harbor. Oh, thanks, Neil. Uh, yeah, folks can uh, learn more about our uh, risk factors through our public filings available at sec.gov, because I may be making some forward-looking statements today. Excellent. Well, now that that's out of the way, um, today we are going to be talking about lineage cell therapeutics. We're going to talk a bit about your pipeline. Uh, And then in general, I'm really excited to dive into the potential for cell therapies in general to address unmet medical needs, uh, age-related degenerative diseases, other serious uh, conditions as well. Um, Before we do that, though, Brian, I would love to get your perspective on where you think we are in terms of the evolution of cell therapies and the field in general. Yeah, I'd be happy to to say that, Neil. I mean, I think that we're in um, uh, version 2.0. And and I say that because uh, with a lot of new and emerging technologies, and you think about the life cycle of, of breakthrough technologies, oftentimes the excitement exceeds the reality in the early days. Uh, and I think that was the case for cell therapy. But um, now, you know, say 10 years on, we actually, as an industry, have developed a lot of the tools that we didn't have available 10 years ago to deliver on those promises. And so what you see now is a realization or a maturation of cell therapy. Uh, of cell therapy. Uh, and in connection with that, I think we're going to start seeing that accelerated growth that often accompanies new technologies. So it's, it's a really wonderful time to be involved in this field. And, and Brian, can you talk about some of the specifics around what you feel make cell therapies particularly compelling when it comes to using them as, as a, a novel you know, therapeutic? Yeah, the, there are a couple of things that I think cell therapy might be able to do, which is beyond the reach of small molecules or antibodies, you know, the traditional pharmacologic interventions of the field. Um, and that's because in some conditions and some diseases and, and other conditions, um, the things that have gone wrong in the body are just so, um, you know, out of control that it's hard to imagine that just a single small molecule, no matter how potent and how powerful is really going to get the job done. So if you have a disease for which a single problem can be pinpointed and a pill can be developed uh, that contains an active ingredient that addresses that one problem, that's wonderful. But there are a lot of conditions out there with severe unmet needs for which the, the magnitude of the problem is so large where the entire cell is basically broken and I think that's where transplant medicine, you know, i.e. using whole cells transplanted in the body to restore activity or to repair function, I think that's where cell therapy is really going to get its best foothold uh, and then be able to build from there. 
Yeah, and Brian, I think there's there's a lot to sort of double click on uh, in terms of what you just said. Obviously, that this this is a, a relatively novel field in terms of you know these types of cell therapies, you know, hitting the commercial market, being available to patients. There's a whole host of challenges that come along with that as well. What do you think are some of the major challenges uh, that sort of face the production delivery of cell therapies? Well, some of the challenges that were originally identified in the early days, I think, were the right ones. So the, these are matters of things like scale. How do you how do you manufacture huge numbers of cells, which is far more difficult than manufacturing huge amounts of a small molecule? Um, purity and reproducibility are also important considerations. You know, at the foundation of the scientific process is you want to reduce variability. So you want to be able to make the same material every time. Well, that's really hard with cells. I mean, even the cells that grow in the center of a plate behave differently than the cells which grow on the periphery of a plate. So there are a lot of challenges, but the industry has done a nice job chipping away at them in order to have today much more rigorous and defensible product candidates than, than some of the early uh, and perhaps overly ambitious endeavors when cell ther- therapy was first getting, uh, getting underway. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, and I think that's a nice segue. I want to dive into some of the nuances of cell therapy. You know, I, I know um, the field is evolving rapidly. You know, the sort of first iteration of a lot of cell therapies were autologous therapies, right, where patient cells have been removed, altered, and then are reinfused into the patient. I know at Lineage, you are focused on developing off-the-shelf cell therapies or allogeneic uh, therapies. Could you talk a little bit about the differences between both of those, maybe compare and contrast in terms of the implications from a a cost perspective, a manufacturing point of view, how uh, they may be better or worse uh, for, for the patient at the end of the day? Yeah, of course. We only work, as you correctly said, on allogeneic or off the shelf. So we have a single cell line, which can be scaled up to tremendous number. We can manufacture billions upon billions of the same kind of cell type. And so we have the benefit uh, not only of being able to drive down the cost of manufacturing because we can scale these cells essentially um, endlessly, uh, but also we use the same material. And in fact, the same the same cells that we're using in the clinic today, they're derived from a line that's more than 20 years old. So over 20 years, it's been extensively characterized. It's very well understood. And it's the same material. Uh, some of the other approaches that are out there may require you to obtain new material and develop new cell lines, or maybe, as you said, harvest cells from a patient, expand them a number, and then either treat that one patient, or maybe you can expand it where you could treat tens or hundreds or even a couple thousand patients. But then what happens? You you sort of have to go back and harvest material again. So now you have a different donor with a different genome, and so you have different material. So uh, we are really pursuing what we think is the ultimate end of cell therapy, which are allogeneic off-the-shelf approaches, because you just can't compete with the economic advantages of scale. I, I have said sometimes that if you wanted to manufacture a billion pizzas, you know that you need to come up with many tons of cheese and many you know tons of pepperoni. 
But if you want to manufacture billions and billions of cells, um, they're doing the work for you, right? They can replicate and divide. And so you just need to feed them the, the media. So the ability to drive down costs by increasing the scale of production of cells, which will self-replicate and retain their original identity, uh, that's really powerful. And we do that with a pluripotent cell line. What's really special here, to just be a little bit more technical for a moment, is that the cell lines we use uh, do not have a Hayflick limit. And the Hayflick limit is the number of times you can passage or replicate cells before they accumulate so many mutations that they won't replicate any further. So if you take normal human adult cells and you replicate them in the laboratory environment, you might only divide them 20, 30, or 40 times and, and you're done. You just can't squeeze out any more material. But with pluripotent cell lines like the ones which we use, you can essentially replicate them forever. And so that's where we get that power of the, of the scale by being an off-the-shelf and allogeneic. But I will say that um, autologous approaches where you start with a patient or customized pro approaches, patient-specific approaches, they probably will have some application in certain settings because you, you never even have to consider fears of rejection. Uh, we operate in the eye and in the spinal cord where those, those fears are greatly reduced. But I think that overall, there, there are going to be optimized solutions in these different categories. But broadly speaking, I think allogeneic just really has a leg up by virtue of the ability to scale and make it much more affordable and having consistent material every single time in every single dose. And Brian, I want to pick up on a, on a thread that, that you had mentioned, because I think this is really, really interesting. And, and that's the cell lines. Um, I, I, you know, if I'm not mistaken, the, the cell lines have a pretty interesting uh, history behind them. Um, could you talk a little bit about the origin of the pluripotent cell lines that you're using today to develop therapies from? Yeah, we have uh, we have a cell line, and it's it really is kind of an amazing story. So there was a couple thirty years ago that wanted to conceive a child. They couldn't do it naturally, so they pursued an in vitro fertilization process, which means uh, they created probably ten or twelve embryos. Uh, this is something that's happening uh, in the millions every year. So you know, several decades ago. Uh, they were doing the same thing. Um, but you, you don't implant 10 embryos into, uh, into a person. Um, you just implant a couple. So if the, if the couple is successful, as this couple was, in conceiving a child, um, they had these additional, they're called blastocysts, that are about six to seven uh, days post uh, fertilization, and they remain in the freezer for, in this case, five years. And then the, the couple is contacted and said, what do you want us to do with this material? We, we're not going to store it anymore. And so these are, these are uh, blastocysts, which are uh, going to be discarded. So they become medical waste. And what uh, was fortunate here is that a research scientist was able to get in contact with the owners of that material um, and you know, preserve it, save it, uh, scrape six or seven cells off of it and establish a new cell line, which as I described in the, in the last question, has become a reproducible line that was expanded you know, probably many, many billions of, billions of times now. So it's, uh, it's, it's really been an incredible uh, journey of donating this material and then starting something that might be able to help millions of people preserve their vision was started by a cell line that was established just by scraping six or seven cells off a blastula 
from 30 years ago. So it really, it really has been quite a journey for this cell line to get to where it is today. Yeah, it really is incredible. So why, why don't we dive in there a little bit and talk about your lead program, OpriGen, uh, which is for dry age-related macular degeneration with geographic atrophy. Could you talk a little bit about the disease, uh, dry AMD? How does it manifest itself and, and how does it progress? Yes, dry AMD is it's a horrible disease. It, it's um, typically associated with aging. And uh, what occurs is that the RPE cells, so the specialized retina cells uh, that, that support cells that are required for vision, they begin to die off. They, they age and they die off. And as they die off, they are absent from, they're not replaced. They become absent from areas that are important for your ability to have central vision. So we all are uh, familiar with central vision and peripheral vision. Well, what happens is you first first start to develop a little bit of waviness and then some black smudginess and uh, and you're losing your central vision. So you can't see, you know, you can't see your phone. You can't see the faces of the people you're talking to. And over time, it just gets worse and worse as these cells keep dying off. And eventually you can become legally blind and then completely blind. And this is happening to about 2 million people in the United States right now. Um, and so there's nothing to treat them. There, there have been attempts to develop therapeutic interventions, but no one has been able to find a way to slow or stop this disease. So our approach, which is uh, quite novel, is to manufacture brand new retina cells. Uh, we can manufacture them literally 5 billion at a time in a three liter bioreactor. And then we can put about 100,000 of those cells into the eye to replace the ones that have died off. And in doing so, by putting in that new layer of cells, we're looking to have them functionally active and be able to protect against further degradation. And in the data that we've collected today, it also appears that we are able to bring some vision back to these individuals. So it really is quite an exciting area because it's a huge unmet need, but there's nothing approved. So it really is open space for us. It's quite extraordinary. And I want to just go back to the condition itself. Um, so there's the dry version of AMD, which, as you point out, has no available treatment options today. There's also another version of AMD, uh, wet AMD, which, if I'm not mistaken, does have some available treatment options today. Could, could you maybe just spend a minute and talk about the difference between the, the dry form and the wet form of, of AMD and, and why maybe one has treatment options today, whereas the dry version doesn't? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's so illustrative of why cell therapy is suitable in a setting of dry AMD. And so if we, if we go to wet AMD, uh, we understand, we as an industry understand molecularly what is going wrong. There's a specific pathway which is leading to the, the, the leakiness of blood vessels, which causes what they call wet AMD. And so we have drugs actually borrowed from the oncology world. We have treatments that are approved to treat wet AMD because we know what's broken. And so if you know what's broken, you know what part you can get to fix. Um, and so those parts have been really successful. Um, the commercially, the wet AMD drugs sell more than $10 billion a year. Meanwhile, dry AMD is poorly understood. We don't know exactly what is broken in the setting of dry AMD. So people have tried to develop drugs, but they're kind of you know going at it blindly to, to not intentionally make a pun there. Um, and so what we have is we have eight to nine times more people suffering from dry AMD 
but yet we haven't found anything to uh, intervene and, and, and uh, be approvable by the FDA because we just don't know what's wrong. And by the time you get to a cell dying off, probably there's thousands of things going wrong. So that's why our view is if you can just manufacture a whole new retina cell, uh, you might be able to slow this disease because you don't have to fret about trying to figure out which pathway is involved and whether it's clinically relevant or upregulated or downregulated or anything else. I don't know what's wrong in those cells. I'm going to just get you some brand new ones and you should be good to go. So let, let's talk about that for a minute. And, you know, at, at the risk of getting too in the weeds and too geeky here, I, I do want to talk a little bit about op regen and the mechanism of action. So it sounds like, as you just described, that there may be a couple different MOAs, but one certainly seems to be that the cells actually engraft in, in um, and then actually help reconstitute the, 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 the vision and the functioning of the cells that have been damaged. Could, could you talk a little bit about that? I know a lot of cell therapies, for example, uh, are injected and then they operate by the paracrine effect, for example, and sort of get washed away and the cells never engraft. Could you just talk a little bit about do, do your cells engraft and also work via other mechanisms? And if they do, it sounds like they do engraft, do, have you measured the duration of that engraftment? Maybe, and maybe just help our listeners uh, understand a little bit about the, the MOA and how these cells actually act once they're inside the eye. Yeah, we we ascribe to the to the idea that that what we're doing is cell transplant. So you really need to physically be placing the cells in the right place in order to get the effect. That's not to say that uh, paracrine or trophic effects aren't beneficial. We we do think that there probably are things that our cells do which improve the microenvironment or the immediate environment that are just secreted from the cells. In fact, we have release criteria to ensure that we have certain molecules that are being secreted from the apical and basal sides of the cells which we manufacture. But our, our you know, our operating you know, ideal here is that that's not enough. So there may be a benefit from, you know, happy molecules being secreted out of transplanted material, but we think that really the effect is driven more profoundly by the actual introduction, transplant, replacement of cells and engraftment. And so, yes, we have seen that none of the patients that we've put the cells in have rejected the cells. And we have from the earliest patient who was treated now more than five years of data of showing that the cells are stably engrafted without being rejected. And that's quite exciting because that was one of the early fears to go back to the beginning of the call. People thought, oh, you're going to put foreign material in, it's going to be rejected. We haven't seen that. And in fact, we've reduced the immunosuppressive regimen from a year down to just 90 days. And, And more recently, we actually treated someone who didn't didn't even get a full course of immunosuppression and still maintained a stable graft. So what we're seeing clinically is that our cells are able to be delivered to the right place. They can uh, arrange into a monolayer, which is what they what they prefer. That's that's how they would like to be uh, established in there, and they're very durable because you can just look in the eye and you can see the cells. And it's a great thing about the eyes; it's so accessible. So um, there may be some settings where undifferentiated cells may have a benefit. I don't know about that. We don't do that kind of work. Um, It hasn't to date been particularly successful and there've been a number of failures. What we do is different. We are really doing transplant medicine. We 
fully differentiate these cells. They cannot then, you know, convert into other types of cells or acquire learned behaviors once they are introduced into the body. We develop functionally active retina cells. We place them in the eye and let them do their thing. And they do. They integrate and they're stable and they're not rejected. Uh, and we think that that is really integral, that that placement of the cells and that stable engraftment and integration with the host is required in order to get the best possible clinical outcome. And, and Brian, I, I want to sort of dig into where you are in terms of clinical development. You had mentioned some of the, the safety that has been demonstrated over the last five years. Uh, you talked a little bit about the eff- efficacy. Um, j- just, to, just to clarify for our listeners, if I'm not mistaken, Op Regen is, is currently in a, a phase one slash 2A open label dose escalation study. Um, is that study still ongoing? And what what is the pathway forward for gaining uh, a, a approval? Have you um, investigated the RMAT pathway for accelerated approval? Or, or talk about some, some future potential about actually being able to get to FDA approval and deliver these in a larger quantity to, to, to patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have, uh, we have RMAT designation. Um, probably the regulatory pathway is going to flow through some measurement of, of uh, either growth of atrophy, i.e. the, you know, how big is that wound in the back of the eye uh, and or uh, visual acuity. How many letters can you read on an eye chart? Um, visual acuity has been a really difficult path. Uh, obviously, there is no regulatory precedent. There's nothing approved. Um, most people shy away from visual acuity because it can be a little bit subjective to collect, and it's really hard to deliver that. It's hard to improve someone's vision. Um, so most of the companies that are out there today are really focused on the uh, atrophy and how big does that area of atrophy, that is how how many cells are being are dying off. Um, what's really kind of amazing about uh, our, our study, which is we've been we've treated 24 patients now with dry MD and we're in the follow up period. So enrollment is complete. and We're just following the data to see what happens over time because it's a slow growing progressive condition. But we have this one patient in particular who actually ended up with a smaller area of atrophy after nine months, and it remains smaller out to what we've reported so far as two years. The reason why that's special is that human beings lack the ability to regrow retina cells. You, you can cut your arm and your skin will heal, but if you cut your retina, it will not heal on its own. So we have this problem where we have this atrophy that's growing. It's directionally only getting worse. And we had a patient that received our cells and their area of atrophy was smaller at nine months and stayed smaller at 23 months. And meanwhile, their vision had improved. And that's incredibly exciting to us because that is the the magnitude of benefit to be able to stop that condition in its tracks. That would give us a lot of statistical power if we go after geographic atrophy or GA growth rate, you can imagine this is what I often say is that, you know, a lot of people are trying to show the difference between a car going 100 miles an hour and a car going 80 miles an hour, right? Slowing the rate of something. But we have a car now that actually runs in reverse. So from a mathematical perspective, there's a lot of power uh, to detect that kind of change when you can demonstrate that sort of benefit in a patient that should not be able to do that. And you will have none of those patients on the control arm. So it's really quite remarkable. 
Yeah, you know, I really like that that car analogy. I think that that that's that's helpful. Okay, I, I'd like to change gears a little bit uh, and talk about one of your other programs, um, OPC One, which is a treatment that you're developing for spinal cord injury. So OPC uh, for our listeners is oligodendrocyte progenitor cells. Um, th- there's a little sort of I guess shared history, Brian, between uh, you and where I used to work, uh, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine or CIRM. Uh, could you talk a little bit about OPC-1? And this is another cell that has, I think, a really interesting and unique history behind it. Yeah, this is such uh, an emotionally engaging program. Uh, what we're doing here is we're manufacturing a different cell type. We're, we're manufacturing the oligodendrocyte progenitors, uh, or just, you know, colloquially, we're manufacturing new spinal cord cells. And this is such a special program because it was, in fact, the first clinical program that your organization, CIRM, uh, which has been so supportive of cell therapy, not just in California, but elsewhere. Uh, but it was the very first clinical program which CIRM supported. And so it's always been very important to CIRM, and it's certainly important to me. The um, the concept here is that when you suffer a spinal cord injury, which is typically from a, a car accident or, you know, mountain biking, shallow water, you know, diving and all of that, um, the wound or that injury uh, in, in connection with the healing process, cells die off, right? You have inflammation and cells die off. And so you end up with essentially a gap. Well, if you have a gap in an electrical wiring system, uh, you know, those, those electrons, those signals cannot jump the gap. So the connection from your brain to your arms or your brain to your legs, uh, your, your brain to your bladder, your brain to your lungs, right? That connection can become dysfunctional or lost entirely. And that's, you know, where you have become a quadriplegic. And so what we are doing is we are manufacturing the same cells that belong there in your spinal cord, the same cells that manufacture the insulation for those neurons, for the axons, the the wiring that's required for mobility. We manufacture and transplant those cells to the patient about three to six weeks after injury. So you don't have to be right there. It's not like stroke. You don't have to be there you know, right away when it happens. You, we let the inflammation go down and then we put in our new cells. And in doing so, what we are doing is providing the substrate so that people can regain the connectivity, especially in their upper extremities. That's where we're focused in the clinic right now is getting people upper extremity mobility so that they can feed themselves, so that they can manipulate their wheelchair and have mobility, so that they can use their phones and you know have the normal fulsome relationships uh, that, that, that we all want to have. And so um, it really has been such another great example of where small molecules haven't shown an ability to sort of move the needle. Um, we don't have anything approved for spinal cord injury patients like this, but perhaps cell therapy will be the key that unlocks this problem. And Brian, can you talk a little bit about where you are in terms of clinical development of, of OPC-1? Yeah, 25 patients have been treated with OPC-1. Um, 95% of them had a successful engraftment, uh, you know, kind of like the eye. You can just do an MRI and you can actually see where you put those transplanted cells. And again, like the eye, the spinal cord has immunoprivilege, so there's not a lot of white blood cells floating around that would cause rejection of these uh, transplanted cells. So we, uh, we've seen incredibly uh, encouraging safety data. The, the cells in the transplant have been tolerated very well, multiple years. Um, and then turning to efficacy, 
it's been very encouraging to see that uh, one third, eight of the patients, so one third of the patients that we treated gained what's called two levels of motor activity. So motor activity is a standard tool that's used to, to measure the status, uh, you know, the range of capabilities of somebody who has suffered a spinal cord injury. And a third of the patients gaining two levels is very significant. It's uh, the difference between someone who requires 24 hours of health care and someone who only needs a few hours a day to have, um, you know, their their you know laundry uh, loaded into the machine because their wheelchair doesn't fit into the pantry where the laundry mat is, right? That that sort of thing. So it really is is a massive change uh, in terms of quality of life and independence, as well as the burden on the healthcare system for enabling individuals to have the freedom to get around and do things that they want to do simply by getting them some additional upper extremity mobility. It's really incredible. And, and I, I would assume similar to dry AMD, there's really no available treatment options today for, for, for patients. Um, so yeah, it's really incredible the effect that these cells, these cells have. Um, w- one question that I, I wanted to dive into a little bit is, you know, obviously lineage is developing, I guess what I would consider a, a platform technology can have a broad, you know, host of applications. How did you decide on dry AMD and spinal cord injury as your lead indications? Well, cell therapy, in my opinion, so they were selected before I joined the company. <laughs> However, uh, in hindsight, they were good decisions. And the reason why I say that is that in the early days of cell therapy, there was a lot of ambition. People thought, oh, we're going to solve Parkinson's and we're going to solve autism and all of this stuff. And maybe someday we will. But the industry really needed to start where the probability of success was the highest, because that would then attract further investment and interest in the field. So going after the eye, where, as I said before, you're able to see what's going on or the spinal cord where you can do an MRI and you can track the status of these of these uh, graphs. That's completely different than injecting cells uh, systemically into a bloodstream and you don't really know where they go and what they're doing. Um, And also going into the eye and the spinal cord where you have much lower risk of rejection, that's a that's a a really great advantage uh, compared to the systemic approaches that are a little bit more ambitious. And then certainly it doesn't hurt to have a huge commercial opportunity and negligible competitive threats, because that, again, helps attract the investment that allows you to go through and and, create very attractive product candidates that are usable ultimately at the bedside. But I think that what's really kind of exciting and I don't think appreciated about Lineage is that the cell lines that we use have within them the capacity to become any of the 200 plus cell types in your body. So right now we're making retina cells and we're making spinal cord cells and we make these dendritic cells for cancer, but there's 197 other cell types out there. (laughs) So there's a massive platform technology residing within this one company. And I sometimes jokingly say that, you know, it's kind of like being the Amazon of of cell therapy. You start by just selling books and now you can, you can buy anything you want on Amazon. So right now we're starting in the eye we're starting in the spinal cord. And then we have opportunities where we could go into all sorts of different areas. And uh, I look forward to, you know, when we get to that scale, being able to consider where we might go next. And in fact, we just, just a couple of weeks ago, we dosed a patient with patelliform maculopathy, which is not the same as dry AMD, but it's another kind of condition that may, you know, perhaps lend itself to treatment by transplant of RPE cells. 
Brian, I may have to borrow some of your analogies. I, I, I like that uh, AWS analogy as well. Um, you know, we could probably talk about this for the next uh, two or three days. Um, I, but I do want to just maybe ask one final question. Um, and, and that is, you know, you had mentioned you, you have the ability to produce all kinds of different cell types. Um, you know, in, in the cell therapy world, as you've no doubt heard said many times, you know, the, the, the process is the product. Could you talk a little bit about the, 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 the manufacturing process? Is that something that you do in-house? Do you contract out uh, any, any or all of, of the manufacturing process? Yeah, manufacturing is, is the foundation of everything that we do. Um, the old saying of garbage in, garbage out. Uh, there's many steps along the manufacturing process, and you have to have control of them all along the way. Because remember, we're starting with these undifferentiated pluripotent cells, and they're just waiting for a signal, right? Do you want me to become a kidney cell? Do you want me to become a liver cell? And so we say, no, 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 we want you to become a retina cell. And so we expose them to different chemicals at different concentrations and different times and in different ways. And in doing so, we are trying to mimic the natural developmental biology that these cells would be exposed to uh, uh, naturally. And in doing so, we are manufacturing pure populations of RPE cells, and there are no residual undifferentiated pluripotent cells after we, we go through the process. And we have all of these um, release criteria. We're able to monitor, not, not the clumsy way that we used to do it as an industry in the past, which was just karyotyping, right? Counting the chromosomes to make sure that things are still fine. Um, now we're doing whole genome uh, screening and we're looking at functional activities and of course things like viability of the cells, uh, a dozen plus surface markers to make sure we have the right cell types. And uh, we just, we have the tools now to do this as an industry. And so as it gets faster and easier and the quality goes up, we'll gain more control over how we use them and in what way, which ultimately, of course, is going to let, lead to uh, better clinical outcomes. So we, we do all of this in-house. It's, it's, in my mind, it's too important and too delicate. <laughs> to You can't throw it over the wall. It's just, you know, that's fine if you're doing a small molecule, but you don't throw cell therapy over the wall and, and ask a, a, a contract organization to, to do it for you. I think it's far too important to be right there monitoring it every step of the way. And, uh, and in doing so, I think that increases our probabilities of clinical success. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a really important point, right, that a lot of folks maybe don't, don't, don't really think about, right? It's controlling the manufacturing process, right, and making sure that you're, you're investing in that process because at the end of the day, it's that process that is producing the, the, the product, right? And they're sort of one in the same in the cell therapy world. And mm -hmm. so the tighter control you have over that part of the process, the higher your probability of successfully developing the right cell, um, which gives you a higher clinical probability of success. So, uh, Brian, with that, I think we better call it a wrap. And I would like to thank you very much for joining us and for a really wide-ranging and, and really great conversation. It's been a lot of fun. and It's been my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a great discussion. I mean, I think we covered a tremendous amount of ground. Uh, you know, I think Brian has a really unique perspective uh, on the on the cell therapy field in general. Uh, you heard him talk a lot about, uh, at least towards the end, the sort of manufacturing process and just how critical it is for a company, uh, at least in Brian's perspective, to control the entire manufacturing process. You know, listeners on this show have heard us talk a lot about this idea of the, the process is the product. And so you can't really separate the two. And so I thought that was particularly interesting. Um, 
you know, I, I was also really fascinated to hear about some of the the um, MOA in terms of how OpReGen uh, actually does in graft, that it helps reconstitute the, 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 the function of the cells that have been damaged. It doesn't just work by uh, the paracrine effect and reduce, recruiting endogenous cells or, or factors uh, to help, you know, repair some of the existing cells. It's actually grafting and, 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 you know, reproducing functioning cells. And so, I mean, in many ways, that's the holy grail of cell therapy. Uh, a lot of the cell therapy doesn't actually work that way, but I think that was really fascinating to dive into. The company's lead indication is for dry AMD. It's always interesting when you've got a technology that could be applied so broadly how a company prioritizes indications. Do you think this is a a safer place to start for an off-the-shelf cell therapy? It certainly seems that way. I mean, you heard Brian talk a little bit about why the company chose to go into the eye and into spinal cord injury or and and into the spinal cord. Um, You know, they're they're both somewhat immune-privileged sites. And so I think there are a lot of benefits to be had by uh, going after diseases that affect these immune privileged sites. Um, there, there's less fear of an immune response to the cells. Uh, that also leads to uh, perhaps lower doses of uh, immunosuppressive drugs. You heard Brian talk a little bit about how they were trending in that direction with OpReGen. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think it certainly makes a lot of sense to go after these sites with, uh, with off-the-shelf therapies. The Early successes within cell therapies have really been dominated by cancer and CAR-T therapies. It was interesting to hear about the origin of the cell's lineage is developing. Does this in some way harken back to the vision people had initially for regenerative medicine? Uh, I think in many ways it, it does. I mean, each of this each of the cell lines, I think, really have a, a pretty fascinating origin story behind them, which is which is why I asked Brian the, the question. Um, but I think, in many ways, the the promise that most people think about in terms of regenerative medicine is, you know, replacement cells, you know, replacement tissues, replacement organs. Right? We're we're not there yet, but what lineage is doing it is definitely you know replacement cells and cells that are actually engrafting and reconstituting some of the lost function from the areas that have been damaged. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, this, this is the, the promise of regenerative medicine. Now, it's still early. You know, these programs are still in clinical development. There's a long way to go. Um, but, yeah, I think this is certainly e- exciting what Lineage is doing. Their lead programs are, are very exciting. And they hold a tremendous amount of promise. And not only that, I mean, there is, there is clinical data um, demonstrating, you know, safety and, you know, early signs of efficacy. And as you, you think about what they're trying to accomplish, where do you see the biggest challenge? Yeah, I mean, I think there's obviously a host of challenges scaling up these technologies, right? Demonstrating efficacy in larger trials. Um, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence for various types of cell therapies working in, you know, N equals one um, type environments. So can these technologies demonstrate efficacy in much larger clinical trials? So, you know, there's always a, a biology risk there. Um, you know, we talked quite a bit about you manufacturing, right? So there's there's certainly risk in manufacturing. Can you scale up or scale out the manufacturing process to produce enough cells to meet the demand for future clinical trials or the commercialization of these cell therapies. Um, And then, of course, you know, 
delivering the cell therapies has a, a host of other challenges that we didn't get into on, on this call, but you know, supply chain logistics, um, th those are all challenges that are associated with um, you know, cell and, and gene therapies because it's very different than the infrastructure that uh, you know, the, the, the biotech and pharma industry has in place today. Although it was interesting to see Lineage make the decision to do its own manufacturing, which seems to be driven in large part as an effort to mitigate risk. Is is you think it makes sense that they're doing that? I mean, I, I certainly does. I mean, you know, if, if you think about what Brian said, I mean, I, they are controlling the process in an effort to help increase the probability of their cells being, you know, the right cells in, in terms of purity. And by doing so, that increases the likelihood of uh, demonstrating efficacy in a clinical trial setting. So by controlling that process, I think, you know, their point of view, which I agree with, is they are greatly able to reduce the risk of, you know, clinical development, making sure that they are producing the right cells, um, because at the end of the day, that's, that's critical. Right. I mean, you, you have to produce the right cells consistently batch after batch after batch. And so I think as Brian rightly said, why would you throw that over the wall to to someone to, to outsource that critical aspect of, uh, of of your programs? Well, until next time. Excellent. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.